So uh, looking forward to meeting you in another kind of way in the next few days. But so far today, it's just been absolutely lovely meeting you as we, as we do in these experiences at the heart and practicing together, supporting each other in the way that we do. Uh, it's very lovely and uh, made me want to think, uh, talk about this a little bit tonight, just about the uh, relationship that we have with each other as we practice together and the importance and the significance of, of good companions along the way what constitutes good companionship and uh, how it, it supports us, what are some of the rudiments of it. For those of you who um, know me know that I am uh, sort of an associate monastic, as Ajahn said. <laughs> I spend a lot of time at the various monasteries in the lineage and uh, have been going there for some, oh my gosh, it's 18 years now, uh, spending several months a year. And it's, it's just that the kind of thing where it, it's become very much a, a deep part of my life, that it's kind of like I need to go there and get a hit of them every year, you know, just get get my whole system tweaked, uh, get some of the rough edges back in line, you know. It's uh, uh, several months in the summer. That's the, the first thing that goes on my calendar every year, is uh, what monasteries I'm going to and how long I'm going to spend there. And uh, it's really because of what happens there for me. Uh, you know, just that, uh, that tweaking, as I said, that uh, uh, pulling for the best in me, pulling for the, the goodness in me. And that's what the experience is there, that you know, whenever you go to the monasteries in this lineage, um, it's very apparent when you go in that this is, this is a very different place. <laughs> they're, they're definitely operating in a different mode than uh, most of us in our daily lives. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an environment of goodness. It's an environment of optimal care and concern for each other's welfare. I spend a lot of time with the nuns, and uh, it always just boggles uh, my mind. Every year I go there, and every year it usually takes me a, a couple of weeks to get reoriented. <laughs> you know, to, it's like... A, or you don't realize it, how much of your time and how much of your thinking, how much of your life is all centered around moi, you know. It's, all, it's, it's like it's always a big surprise to me when I go there each year that, you know, I'm not the only person in the world. <laughs> there's, uh, there's other people, and uh, the, the degree to which they are aware of that and the degree to which they are attending to that is phenomenal. And I find it enormously helpful just uh, uh, in... A, aligning my own heart, aligning myself with what's really my true nature. And it's very much like what we've been, what we do here. You know, when we're on retreat, um, there's, there's an environment here, isn't there? There's a culture, there's a way that we are together. And uh, Ajahn outlined it so beautifully last night with the refuges and, and precepts, and then again this morning, you know, we're, we're constantly uh, reminding ourselves that this is, this is a different way of being than we're accustomed to. It's not that we don't try to be this way all the time, but uh, what you find often on retreat is that uh, people just get very happy and in ways that we haven't even... We don't, sometimes we don't even talk to each other. Sometimes people come in and go from retreats and they, uh, you know, they have this um, longing to, to keep it going or to, to be together. Uh, and... It's an interesting phenomenon, you know, where, where we um, often, uh, after we've experienced something like this, in the leaving of it, there can be kind of a sadness. And often what we'll do in that is just lab- belabor the sadness and get caught up in that. And one of the things I've been noticing in myself is, is a kind of a, a, a practice of doing an about-face at those kinds of moments. And, you know, where, I, where I'm going in the direction of where my mind takes me and instead just uh, look and see, well, what is it that's stimulating or stirring that feeling? And uh, it's very interesting because uh, often th- just that kind of experience where you feel sad, uh, if you just turn that around and look and see, well, wh- what's that all about? Well, it, you'll see the joy and the happiness that comes from practicing in this way and from being with each other in this way. 
And so I like to just remind myself of that so I can, uh, you know, so it's kind of like what I was saying earlier where we do a 180, we, we go, we're going 180 degrees in the wrong direction, you know, uh, instead of going out with uh, mourning the loss of something, rather turn around and look and, and, and question and wonder, what is that good feeling? You know, to me, it's a, it's our heart's true design and desire. It's a, it's like we're getting tweaked and we're aligned, and we're not at odds with ourselves. You know, and and if that isn't evidence that our true nature is good, I don't know what is, because when you come into an environment like this where there is goodness, and um, that reverberates then, uh, you know, you have to recognize that it's because there's no, there's no rub going on. We're, we're tweaked. <laughs> we're aligned. You feel that? It's lovely. So, um, it, not surprisingly, uh, the Buddha has a, had a lot to say about this energy, you know, that we feel when we're together like this. Uh, sometimes, I, you know, I feel like we're all kind of riding on the coattails of each other's wholesome effort. You know that, and uh, it, you, you can you can get carried away with it, which is in a good way, in a wonderful way. Like if you if you feel like you're, uh, maybe you just don't feel like doing the walking or something like that. You can look and see, and you see this one and that one's doing it, or you know, uh, it, it, staying with it. You know, staying at it. Uh, I think it's it's really not more than the fact that we're all doing this together. There's a tremendous energy going in the direction of what it is that is our skillful and our wholesome intention, each individually. So the the Buddha talks a lot about this energy and the relationships that go along with this. And I've been collecting through the years, I've been collecting a lot of um, the suttas, where he addresses this. I think I've got some of the best ones. <laughs> so uh, I asked Ajahn if it would be all right if I could uh, offer some of these tonight. And, um, they're about friendship and about companionship. And so uh, I look at it two ways uh, as a reflection. That one wants to consider um, the type of people that we're drawn to, the type of people that we hang out with. Where, how, do you, how do you spend your time? Who do you spend your time with? But also you want to evaluate and consider whether or not one is being a good companion, a good friend to people also. So when we look at these qualities and look at these characteristics, it works both ways. How do I select people? How do I become a good friend? So this first one is uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya. It's uh, one often quoted. Uh, It's called Friendship with the Lovely. And this is interesting, too, because one of the... Um, I was asking the Ajans about this today. The, the Buddha was often... Um, he's kind of a... He liked to play with words a little bit. And so lots of times you'll hear in the suttas where there's a double meaning for something. And uh, sometimes he explains it, sometimes not. But it's, it's there. And this is one of those, this word lovely. Because uh, what he's getting at using this word is association with the lovely is a word that he often used to refer to good spiritual friends, associating with the lovely. <laughs> but then it's also, um, uh, the lovely, it's, that's sort of the external, but the internal is sort of um, the, the loveliness within one's own being. So aligning oneself with one's skillful states, skillful impulses, you know, the goodness that we all have. Um, and sometimes it's just a case of, uh, just recollecting it and turning to it and just getting in line with it. So friendship with the, with the lovely. I know of no other, th- other th- uh, I know of no other thing of such power to cause the arising of skillful states that have not arisen or the waning of unskillful states already arisen as friendship with the lovely. In one who is a friend of what is lovely, skillful states not arisen do arise, and unskillful states already arisen wane. So you can feel this sort of syncopation that he's pointing to. When you align yourself, sort of either by going into environments where there is a lot of skill, where there is a lot of a good intention, then um, what will happen is that that will pull for that in, in this heart. You know, so, so that 
you, you kind of get on, it's like, kind of like riding down a ski slope or something like that. You get on the waves of it. You ride the force of it and, and go with it. Let it pull. Let it pull for the goodness in your own heart. And that has this uh, complementary effect of uh, conditioning the mind to go with that um, at the more subtle levels. I love that because I think it offers this feeling of, of great hope. You know, uh, one can do this. There's a, there's a lot of suttas where uh, the Buddha, there's a lot of suttas where he's talking to lay people, but there's a lot where he's talking to the monks. And um, he addresses them as such. And this is something that um, I think worth, is worth um, mentioning because I think a lot of us as lay people, we can hear these suttas and we think that maybe um, this is for somebody else and not for us. Uh, you know, there can be that feeling that it's a, it's a different kind of practice than what we're doing but I came across a, 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 a footnote in the sutta, in the Satipatthana Sutta, where Bhikkhu Bodhi defines um, monk. And uh, I, should, I should just mention that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the foremost scholars of our time. He's a wonderful monk. And he's, he's kind of like, a, he's the guy that you turn to when you want to know the, the, the party line on this particular uh, teaching or anything, you know. And uh, he's kind of like, I always compare him to, you may have heard these commercials with a financial advisor, E.F. Hutton, you know, and it's, it's like when E.F. Hutton speaks, you know, everybody listens. <laughs> the whole place gets quiet and listens, you know. It's kind of like that with Bhikkhu Bodhi. What do you say? What do you say? What's his statement on this? And this is what he says about, uh, this is how he defines Bhikkhu or monk. He says that it's any person who earnestly endeavors to accomplish the practice of the training. But I think that merits our attention as lay people, and one certainly doesn't want to equate ourselves with the monastic community because it's very clear that their um, degree of renunciation is much higher than ours. You know, so I'm, I'm not putting ourselves in, in the same boat in that sense, but in another sense, in the sense that we're all together uh, a community of people, lay and monastic, who are um, practicing the Eightfold Path who are earnestly endeavoring to accomplish the practice of the training, well, yeah, you know, that's us. And so the Buddha's talking to us, too. If, I guess, the, the question is, do you see yourself that way? Are you someone who is earnestly endeavoring to practice the training? If so, then listen up, because the Buddha is talking to us. So here's one from the, from the Itibhutaka. It's called The Good Friend. With regard to external factors, I don't envision any other single factor like friendship with admirable people as doing so much for a monk in training who has not attained the goal but remains intent on the, on the unsurpassed safety from bondage. A monk who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. This is, this is very interesting. Um, you know, uh, one of the uh, a number of the suttas where the, the Buddha is talking about the mental hindrances, for example, um, he lists antidotes um, for each of those mental hindrances. And one of the things that is consistent throughout two things to apply for both for all of the uh, hindrances, and one of them is um, listening to and studying the Dhamma, like keeping your mind intent on the Dhamma, and that will be enormously helpful when we're caught in the arising of some of these unskillful states. But the other one is to, to be with people who aren't that way, to, to search out people who aren't that way. So if you know you have a very strong tendency in one way or another. You know, but interestingly, I don't know about you, but certainly watching in my own heart, my own life and practice, that's, that's not what the mind tends to do. You know? If it wants to gossip about somebody, or if, if it's uh, restless or agitated, it will look for people who are that way, won't it? Just to find that kind of companionship. And I think, as I've watched it, I've just noticed that this is, um, to me, I think it's just this uh, identification with sanya, which is a mental uh, um, faculty, really, uh, perceptions and views that uh, the, the, the mind tends to associate. Whatever we're experiencing, it tends to uh, relate and associate similar things. You know, so, so that very easily, if you're not careful, what it will do is, you know, when you, when you want to 
talk about talk unkindly about somebody, he'll go looking for somebody who el- who else who will also do that. You know, it's it's not personal. It's just the way the mind operates. And so I think this is very important. Why he says to uh, really take note of that and and look and see. Uh, are we turning to the, the right kind of people when we are uh, dealing with uh, difficult states? Be with people who are that way, aren't that way. Uh, be who people, with people for whom that is not a habit, the habit. I really like that. I, th- I find that really helpful. Of course, my, my favorite uh, one uh, is from this uh, Samyutta Nikaya. It's called With the Good. Here's what he says. One should associate only with the good. With the good, one should foster intimacy. Having learned the true Dhamma of the good, one becomes better, never worse. Isn't that lovely? Better, never worse. That's what we're experiencing. And that's why it feels so good. There's an, a couple from the, the Dhammapada and some other ones where, um, you know, the, uh, some of the language might need to be explained. And uh, one of the things that um, I've noticed, just, you know, the small amount of study that I've done, really, um, is that uh, the Buddha often um, draws these dichotomies, like he might be talking, like we might say about fat and skinny or tall and short, you know. Um, and... Um, it's interesting when he draws these dichotomies that how, how impersonally they're set forth so that there's no judgment about one being right or one being wrong. It's just, you know, it's very impersonal. This one's this way, this one's that way. And he does this with um, this um, breakdown between um, what he calls wise people or uh, skilled people and fools. <laughs> and so you've got to get comfortable with this word fools because he's drawing a, a difference between sages and wise people uh, and fools, but it's not like it's um, it's not like it doesn't carry with it the pejorative meaning really that we might use it in contemporary or colloquial language. It's just more like some people are this way and some people are that way, you know. Just recognizing that also, I found that to be very helpful in well, for example, just dealing with our political leaders and things like that. You know, you so at some point you stop expecting wisdom from from people who don't have it, you know. <laughs> it's like it's okay, you know. It's just don't don't go nuts about it. The, uh, people get into these positions and uh, aren't necessarily qualified. At least not by these standards, you know. So anyway, so he he talks about fools and and sages. And here's one from the two from the Dhammapada. It's good to see the noble ones. To live with them is always a pleasure. Not seeing fools is also always a pleasure. (laughs) He who walks in the company of fools has to grieve for a long time. Association with fools is ever painful, as living with an enemy. Association with the wise is a pleasure, as living with one's relatives. Which I... (laughs) Might cause for cause for qualifying too. I guess they had different relatives back then. <laughs> so here's another from the Itibhutika with a similar language. A person who wraps rotting fish in a blade of kusa grass makes the grass smelly. So it is if you seek out fools. But a person who wraps powdered incense in the leaf of a tree makes the leaf fragrant. So it is if you seek out the enlightened. So, knowing your own outcome as like the leaf wrappers, you shouldn't seek out those who are not good. The wise would associate with those who are good. Those who are not good lead you to hell realms. The good help you reach a happy destination. Sweet, isn't it? (laughs) So here's one. Uh, sometimes I stray from the um, the Buddha and go to some of the the terras, uh through the through the ages. And um, one of my favorites is uh, Ajahn Mun. And, and by the way, I found this little jewel um, googling <laughs> good friendship or something like that. And this internet is just fascinating. It's it's, it's enormously helpful if you want to do research into the teachings and find out who said what and where. 
you come up with all kinds of gems. And this was one of them. Um, it comes from Ajahn Man, who, um, Ajahn Chah, who's the, the head of the, our lineage, um, uh, through many years, I think he, he met Ajahn Man as a young monk. And um, from that point on, he called him his teacher. And, and yet, um, he only spent um, three days with uh, Ajahn Man. And uh, one has to wonder what went on during those three days, you know. I just uh, often think about those that, and, and would love to have been a fly on the wall or just kind of, you know, just kind of invisibly listening to what went on. But apparently there was quite an awakening that took place in Ajahn Chah. And um, some of it, as I understand it, we, we were talking about it earlier, was around um, this, this thing that we, um, uh, the Buddha explains in, uh, well, in, in a lot of places, but also one is in the Satipatthana Sutta where um, he's make, he makes the distinction between um, the senses and the objects of the senses and what arises in relation to that so that he, he, he says very clearly that there's the eye and there's the, the thing that the eye sees and there is the fetter that arises in relation to them. And so, you know, making very clear through this teaching, that whatever suffering we may be experience, it's it's not in the object. It never has been, it never will be, it never was. It, it's all in the relating. It's all in how we pick it up, how we receive it, and what we do with it, right? So uh, apparently, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, and maybe Ajahn can and tell us about this, but... Um, that that's as I understand it, uh, the kernel uh, of the the teaching that really um, and enlightened Ajahn Chah served to help do that. So anyway, with a long introduction, but <laughs> I wanted to give you a little background on Ajahn Man. He's he's a he's an amazing uh, teacher. Uh, although we actually don't have a whole lot of his teachings, because um, I, I think he was a fierce ascetic and a wanderer. He traveled. Um, I don't think he did the the rains retreat in two places. Consecutively, ever did he? After he was seventy-five, he stayed put. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so I, I think that they don't have a, a, a lot of. I mean, maybe it's a, because of his wandering. Maybe it's recordings. I don't know, but they don't have a lot of his teachings. So here's what he's talking. What he says about this topic of um, friendship is a little chapter called potential. The traits that people have carried over from the past differ in being good, bad, and neutral. Their potential follows along with their traits, that is, higher than what they currently are, lower, or on the same par. Some people have developed a high potential to be good, but if they associate with fools, their potential will develop into that of a fool. Some people are weak in terms of their potential, but if they associate with sages, their potential improves and they become sages too. Some people associate with friends who are neither good nor bad, who lead them neither up nor down, and so their potential stays at a mediocre level. For this reason, we should try to associate with sages and wise people so as to raise the level of our potential progressively higher and higher, step by step. Can you feel that? I love that. It's it's the aspiration that Ajahn was talking about. It's that that lifting up, you know, that uh, it's like the, the desire that pulls us up, not the one that pulls us down. So just getting a little more uh, specific about um, what characterizes association with the wise. And uh, one of the main things is uh, being with people who keeps the precepts. And the Anguttara Nikaya, he says this, the unworthy worthy person does not keep the precepts. The still more unworthy person encourages others to do the same. The worthy person keeps the precepts and encourages others to do the same. Love that. You can feel the, the strength of that, the, 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 the pull that I'm speaking to, of the, the energy of goodness. 
how when we associate with people like us, who are people of like mind, people who want to develop and want to train themselves. So it's good to just think about what, why that is, especially with regard to the precepts. Um, you know, what goes on with the keeping of the precepts. And, uh, you know, this is something that as uh, practitioners, we, and certainly uh, members of uh, local communities and certainly in our lives individually, coming to retreats like this. And when we go to the monasteries, uh, you know, the, the, the recitation of the precepts is a regular thing. You know, it's, it's always fascinating to me when I'm at the monasteries to see how many lay people come, especially on the observance days, you know, which is once a week or, or so on the different phases of the moon. And they come with a very express purpose of chanting together, of certainly being with the monks and nuns, but, but uh, remembering what they're about, you know, <laughs> remembering, oh yeah, I'm about goodness and harmlessness and contentment and things like this. And so, uh, you know, that's what we do. We do this on a regular basis. Um, all of us in many different ways. Uh, but just consider how it works. Um, what, what we're doing when we're using the precepts as a training is um, a- adopting these two uh, qualities of um, resolve and restraint. And so you, you make a firm resolve. You know, I undertake the precept too, dot, dot, dot. And... Um, and it's it's wild the way that works. What that does is it, it engages um, a, a sort of a, a, a memory in the mind. It gets recorded. It gets registered, as Ajahn Pranadama always says. It gets registered in the mind as an intention. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm about. And then uh, when there is the arising of the unskillful impulses, you know, that which... You know, let's be honest, they're, they're there all the time. They're there a lot. Then um, that um, resolve, it, it becomes one of the players in those moments, whereas a lot of the time uh, those moments will just go on compulsively. We'll just act out of our compulsive habits and, and, and moods and mind states. But something gets engaged that, uh, in a way, it just short-circuits it or it brings a, it sheds a different light on it. So that, you, you know, with that light, you have the option. And you, you have this little pause, don't you? And you, Maybe you do, maybe you don't. In a way, it certainly matters on one level whether you do or don't. But lots of times, you'll, you'll have the pause and still go ahead and, you know, do the behavior. But that counts for a huge amount. Just that capacity to, to slow it down and to remember, to recollect, what it is that we're about. You know, and, and through the years, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, you know, the precepts have been interesting because early on, or certainly when we chant them, particularly when we chant them in Pali, I didn't even know what I was saying. And one is just so bent on getting the words right and doing the chant correctly and bowing in the right places that you don't even think about uh, what you're saying, you know. But uh, as the years have gone by, and one, uh, one gives more thought to these things, then... Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I sort of I sort of have this feeling in, increasingly, where I'm I'm standing taller in the precepts, and like my shoulders are back and my chest is lifted and high, and and you know I'm, I'm just sort of saying that this is this is important to me. This is what I'm about. You know, I'm about harmlessness. I'm going to do everything I can to treat people with a, a kindness and a respect. Uh, I'm, I'm about trying to to uh, be content with things, not to always be grabbing and piggy, and, you know, what can I get from me? Yeah, with with, with uh, people, other people, especially people I find attractive. I'm about respect, respecting them, not always looking for um, what I can get, you know. <laughs> What's it like to be with people and not want anything from them? You know, not, uh, and, then, and that one's been interesting because I've seen no end to the ways that I can manipulate and connive and get people to do what I want them to do. It's really subtle, isn't it? You know this, and so the 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 the, the, the precept of respect, um, appreciation for one's well-being, 
you know, speech, not, not uh, using speech that's divisive or dishonest or harsh, and doing things to keep the mind clear. So all, all of this, this is where spiritual friends come in. This is where we can be an, an enormous help to each other. You know, I get, I get so much help on this level uh, at the monastery. I'll never forget the, one of the first times that I went there. I think it was actually the first time. I was still very, very rough and coarse. And I like to think I've gotten a little softer through the years. Uh, and I think I have. But uh, this first visit, I remember um, standing in the kitchen with one of the novice monks. And, and just in, in, you know, subtle ways, trying to engage him in some divisive speech. You know, <laughs> just really like, a, you know... That one over there, I don't like them. Do you? That kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> and 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 we do this, don't we? You know. And but it was so amazing to me. This was my first encounter with people who were practicing like this, and and it was amazing to me because uh, he just uh, he just stood there, and he he didn't pick it up. You know. So I, I well. I did what I usually do. I tried again, you know. <laughs> I came at it again and tried to get him to do it, and and he didn't pick it up. And it was the weirdest feeling, because it was kind of like spitting in the wind, you know. You 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 put it out there. You put your junk out there, and what happens if nobody picks it up? Then you know it basically just comes right back on you, and you're left standing there in your own crud, you know, just slimy black gunk all over me, you know, that came from me. And uh, it's like the Buddha said, if you, if you give it to me and I don't take it, you know, whose is it? <laughs> well, it was mine, you know. It, it, was a, it was an amazing teaching for me, just to, to feel the, uh, the power of this. And I mean, to be fair, let, let's see, we don't want to be too harsh on ourselves, be honest, but you don't have to be harsh. But, I think a lot of this kind of speech that we all engage in, if we're honest about it, right? Um, a, a lot of it is just kind of subtle ways of connecting. You know, it's sort of like, you know, I hate them. Do you hate them? Oh, good. Let's be friends, you know? <laughs> you know, we can, we can sort of get together. And that's, that's a, a, some of what's, what's driving that kind of stuff, isn't it? And, 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 uh, and that, so that's, there's a way that that's not all bad, but you can see the ignorance, you can see what happens when one follows an unawakened mind, when one, one follows um, the unskillfulness that comes out of an unawakened mind. That's, that's the path that, you know, a simple thing like wanting to connect with somebody, if it's done in ignorance, that's, that's the way it can go. It's wild, isn't it? So just to, to be aware of these things and recognize how the environment of goodness can be so helpful you know, when I spend time with the, the nuns at the, the monastery, you know, living with them, it's just a, it's a great joy for me. It wasn't always, though. You know, at first it was, it was hard, you know, because uh, some of them are particularly good. <laughs> they're so nice and they're, they're so kind and they're just looking for ways to, to do things to um, support you in your practice. Just little notes or a vase of flowers or remembering what you like and what would what would be a nice little thing for you, especially if you're sick, you know. And and so you, this constant mirroring back to you, uh, the these the places that maybe you don't do that kind of stuff, you know. I don't know about you, but I get with people like that, and there's a bit of a rub there because I have to remember, you know, I, I have to admit or acknowledge that uh, my mind isn't always thinking of other people like that. And yet how helpful it is and how kind it is and supportive it is. So one of the um, very uh, significant uh, teachings I I received there was uh, a number of years ago when, um, actually I was first coming on staff here and I had a big job to do and uh, I was coming on as resident teacher and I was pretty green, and uh, had, uh, I just went to uh, the monastic community for some help because I didn't know, I, you know, basically I wanted to know, like, what, what are some of the 
rudiments of, of living together in community. How do you do that well? <laughs> how, do you, how do you have a group of this many people living together and, and live together in harmony? And so I actually uh, conducted interviews with uh, several of the monks and nuns, and uh, they were enormously helpful. And uh, so one of them in particular, it, it's, um, it's the teaching that comes from the suttas, but it came from one of the monks to me that, at this time. And um, it, it's something that I've been chewing on ever since then. This was about 10 years ago. Still, still working with it, still trying to uh, understand and live what uh, he said, what he advised in this. So I asked, you know, what are the, um, the standards um, in monastic life that, that make it work, that, that uh, make it possible for you to live together in harmony. And this is what he said. He said, restraint of the senses, being content with little, and deferring to elders. So I've been thinking about that a lot, you know. Um, Restraint of the senses, that there's a lot in that, certainly a lot that we can say about that. Just the restraint that I was speaking of with regard to the precepts can be uh, one way to look at that. But also just uh, being able to, to um, uh, not so quickly and compulsively act on every way that we pick up what comes out of the sense doors. You know, just to slow that all down. I remember Ajahn Chah said that that, that longing for sense pleasures he compared it to a clapper of a bell that never stops ringing. Yeah, you can feel it. Very painful, uh, not having restraint in that regard. Just being, you know, basically being completely at the mercy of your compulsions. I remember one of the monks said um, that without mindfulness and relaxation, and without some effort with regard to keeping the precepts, that our entire lives are compulsion. We're just living completely in a compulsive mode. So that what we experience, what we're going to experience, is what we've always been experiencing. (laughs) It's just like you're just kind of at the mercy of our karma and our patterns and our habits. So this one, restraint of the senses, is, is very important. And the, the being content with little, you know, this has this uh, capacity to, to squash the, the impulses to accumulate and consume. And I think that's a very big part of the happiness that people feel on retreat. I remember talking to somebody at the end of a retreat one time, and the thing that got her, that really dazzled her, was how little she had while she was on retreat and how little she needed. <laughs> and she said, I'm going to take this home with me. <laughs> I'm going to use this. This is amazing. And not just to mention in that regard, too, that one of the things that really um, plays into our developing that capacity to be content with little is um, none other than what we're doing every minute in the sitting when, or the walking when we come back, when the mind wanders and you come back, it wanders and you come back. It wanders off and you come back. How many thousand times will we do that during this retreat? Well, you know, not to understate the significance of that movement in the mind. It's like the mind correcting itself. You know, going with impulses and pulling back. Going with impulses and pulling back. And learning through the months and years of practice to to be content. <laughs> to stay where in the now, stay where we are in the first place, instead of keep moving off to the objects. But this, this last one, the, the deference to elders, that's the one that I've been chewing on the most through the years, and just trying to understand why this was uh, such a key player in, in the monastic training, and how I could take something from that for, for me in my, in my lay life. And uh, it's an interesting one because, you know, at first glance, you, you, most of us in the West, you hear that <laughs> deference to elders. And, uh, 
you know, it, it smacks of hierarchy, it smacks of authoritarianism, and, you know, it smacks of tyranny, you know. Somebody's going to tell me what to do, and uh, I have to align myself with what other people want. And, I mean, I've talked to some of the monks and nuns about it, and they said, yeah, you know, it's, it's actually, it's not like it's not a problem in the monastery, the monks and nuns, some of them feel that way too, and it's, uh, it can be difficult. But, you know, what gets my attention is, why, why, I mean, the Buddha is a pretty wise person, you know, the wisest I've ever known. And why, why is this part of the training? Why is this kind of relationship part of the training? If, if there's something that uh, he has set up, then it's got to be significant. And uh, so I realized that for a long time I was looking at um, the one side of the equation and not the other. And it, it came to me one time when we were doing this chant that we did tonight, where the recollection of the Buddha, where this line where he says, um, "He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained." And and for years uh, I've chanted that line, and it's been about the Buddha. And, you know, one musters up all your appreciation and gratitude and thank you, thank you, you know, for training and, and uh, teaching us. But then uh, suddenly it just ju- it jumped out at me, that bit, those, those who wish to be trained. There's an equation in here. There's a relationship in here. It's not uh, just about the Buddha. It's about us. It's about whether or not we have it in our hearts um, to be trained, whether there's a malleability, whether there's a softness and a, and a receptivity, you know, a willingness to be trained. So I just began to look at that in myself. You know, well, is that strong in me? Because it seems to me that's really what he's talking about. Because it's not about obeying. It's not about giving oneself over to a person just because they're the boss. Yeah? Or a teaching, the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the Sangha. It's not about that. It's about what happens in the heart when one acknowledges and accepts and uh, you know, not in a, in a self-denigrating way, but recognizes that one needs training. You know, there's sort of a, an, an acknowledgement of um, the, the need for help and uh, a turning to those who can offer that. I think that I have found this, just reflecting on this, to be incredibly helpful for me in my own practice. It's just the, this softening, this uh, relinquishing of this unbelievable tendency, <laughs> you know, I dare say in all of us, to always want to be right, you know, to know, to be on top of it, to, to be the one that's got all the answers. It's a very strong tendency in us. And that has to soften if one wants to be one who wishes to be trained. Because basically, you know, my experience anyway, is that the, the Buddhist teachings, you know, they're going to turn everything you have ever known about happiness and ending suffering completely on its head. <laughs> you know, it's like you gotta, we've got to unlearn everything we've learned because the, the, the way that we're operating now or the way that ignorance operates, is that, you know, just, just look at the hindrances, for example, that um, getting more will make you happy. Getting away from things will make you happy. Uh, sticking your head in the sand, vegging out, <laughs> just going to sleep, you know, that'll do it. Just ignore it and it'll go away. Or uh, worrying you know, turning to agitated, uh, restless states of mind, or just spinning and spinning and spinning in doubt and confusion, like as if somehow that's going to bring us to resolve, to some kind of resolution, to some kind of understanding. You know, it's really beginning to get it that um, none of these mental hindrances work. You know, these are the approaches of an unawakened mind. This is, this is what I like to call them, the, the unawakened mind's best guess at what to do about impermanence, suffering, and not-self. 
That's what's going on in every single moment when we're caught in these mental hindrances. You know, but, well, it hurts. Well, get away from it. Go to something else, you know. But it's ending. It's over. Well, worry about it. Get nervous, you know. That'll help. (laughs) I can't control it. Yeah, well, just kind of spin and spin and spin and see if that works. (laughs) You know, it's, it's what we're doing over and over and over again. So this is all related, I think, to this willingness to uh, submit in a way. And it's not, it's not a, a negative um, submission. It's more a receiving, allowing, and an opening the heart to the possibility that what we know about happiness isn't quite right. And that maybe the Buddha and the teachers that he has taught who have realized the same, that maybe, maybe they uh, have something to teach us. And I love that. Because what, what happens in the, um, in the monasteries, and, um, if, if somebody uh, wants to commit, subject themselves to the training, then uh, they, they come in and they, they take uh, preliminary vows and they... Um, practice for a few years. And then when they go for the uh, full ordination, there's a, there's a part of that uh, process that uh, requires of them that they take what's called dependence. And that means that um, they are saying that they will, for the period of five years, uh, be dependent on, the, on the, the terrors, the elders in the community, to train them. And uh, I don't know, I, I've thought a lot about that, five years, you know, that we can learn a lot from that. And that's just, that's just after the ordination. Usually they've been there for three years in addition to that, or two or three years. And, and so we're talking, you know, good, a good uh, eight years, seven or eight years, just to say, okay, uh, I'm just going to trust the Buddha. I'm going to listen to the teaching, and I'm going to go along with uh, the, the, what the elders are saying. And, uh, and, and dare to sort of surrender one's own sense of what we think. I find that very powerful. And so I think this whole idea of deference to elders, it, it doesn't have to do with people, you know. It has to do with a quality in the heart that uh, wants to know and understand Things that are of significance, things that are that are important, and, and to this end, actually, just as I've worked with it, I, I've seen in my mind and in the, the way I behave sometimes, I, um, you know, the ways that I don't do that, the ways that I'm not giving myself over, and so I've, I've taken on some practices that m- maybe um, they sound they, they're kind of coming in the back door at how to soften my heart around these tendencies to always be right. Always be the CEO and the boss, and you know whether it's of myself or other people, you know just just trying to find a, a, a way to soften around that. And it, it came to a head for me um, in the in the kitchens at the monasteries because, uh, you know, I've been going there for many years, and um, you know what you do at the monastery is basically you're there to um, serve and support uh, the community, and uh, there's all different kinds of work that we do, but. A lot of it is, um, it, as you've seen here, that the, the, the high spot of the day is the alms round you know, and the meal. And so sometimes people bring food in, but a lot of times the food is cooked right there and uh, from the offerings that uh, people have given. And so that's uh, what a lot of the lay people and the uh, Anagarikas and Anagarikas do. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a person who's always been very comfortable in the kitchen and... Uh, uh, I know my way around the kitchen pretty well. And after many years of teaching, uh, I mean, of um, cooking in the monasteries, then, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the kind of person that often when I'm head cook, people are kind of relieved, you know, <laughs> because they, it's, it's, a, it's an environment that can make you very nervous, you know, because basically we've got about two hours to, to put out a meal for sometimes as many as 40 or 50 people, you know. 
And so uh, it, it's, it's always helpful when somebody knows what they're doing. And, uh, and you know, o- over the years, as I said, just from my experience, I, uh, I've been that person a lot. And sure, I've relieved a certain amount of suffering doing that. Um, but I would watch myself with this uh, way that I was holding this, uh, especially one time when just through doing that, I, was, uh, I wasn't entirely unkind, but I, I caused some pain for somebody as I was trying to get them, I was trying to kind of bring them in, you know, just kind of, they were all over the place and just try to uh, focus them a little bit more on, on what they were doing. But I, as I looked at that, I thought, oh gosh, I didn't, I didn't want to hurt her. You know, what, what was going on in that? And I, I looked at it later on. And I realized that, yeah, okay, there's a lot of this good intention. I'm trying to uh, spare people from uh, a lot of difficult states. But if I'm honest, and I was looking at it, I, I saw, well, that's not all that's going on in, in these kinds of moments. You know, look and see. And I could see very clearly that what I was also trying to do was have them do it my way. You know, I, I, want, it, I want it done my way. Um, and it's very subtle. And it can often be clouded over with these good intentions. And it's a mix. It's not to say those good intentions aren't there. But in very subtle ways, how we're controlling things, you know, just keeping the lid on difficulty because I can't bear difficulty, right? So when I saw this uh, in myself, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is really amazing. So I, I started a, a practice, and this was about seven or eight years ago, uh, and I started a practice in the kitchen, which I call my yielding practice. And I, I, do, it, I do it there, and I've, I'm practicing it in many ways elsewhere. Uh, and, and it basically goes like this. You know, when somebody comes into the kitchen and they say, okay, how do you want the carrots cut? And so I say, well... Okay, cut them like this and this and this and this and this. And so they'll stand there maybe and they'll go, well, why do you want them cut that way? <laughs> you know, and, I, and I'll go, uh, what did I say? And they said, well, you said you wanted them cut like this and this and this, you know. And, and then I'll go, oh, I must have been crazy. That's, oh, how would you do it? And they'll go, I'd do it like that and that and that and that, you know. I say, oh, that's much better. Do it that way. I love that. That's much better. Let's go with that. And just yield. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.